Some years ago, when I was uh, having some personal practice time in Burma, in Myanmar, with my teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, I entered the interview room to give my report. And before I even took my position, as I was walking in the room, he asked a question of me. He asked me, what is equanimity? And so... I had the time, because we walked in very slowly, and then we did three bows, so I had the time to think, what am I going to say? You know, have to be complete and wise and all of that. So after I took my place and completed my three bows, I gave the response in short. He always said, short and to the point. Uh, So I I simply said, it's a spacious, non-reactive balance of mind, able to experience whatever is arising, whatever it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So he gave his usual approving grunt, which means it goes like, hmm. And I knew that meant, oh, that's pretty good. (laughs) So, not bad. And then he proceeded uh, to say, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindfulness. That's the lead horse. And behind are the first pair of horses, which are faith and wisdom. Behind that is a second pair of horses, which are concentration and energy. And he continued to say, when faith and wisdom and concentration and energy are in balance, The lead horse, mindfulness, has little work. And the chariot is led effortlessly, smoothly, and powerfully to the ultimate goal of liberating the heart of greed and hatred and delusion. So I wanted to explore the parts of this chariot that Upandita spoke about, Uh, this... uh, mindfulness, faith, wisdom, concentration, and energy. Not so much the equanimity part, but equanimity is a result of all of that being in balance because all of these being in balance create the powerful, uh, the powerful environment of equanimity. So this talk tonight is about those five cardinal virtues or the five spiritual faculties of mindfulness, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy. They're active powers in and of themselves, which become stronger as the continuity of our practice gains momentum. And some of us can see this in our practice. You come in to report and say how it is for you, that uh, sometimes you say, oh, the mo- it has its own momentum. Mindfulness can be at times quite effortless. It comes up by itself. It's not that we have to oomph it along. So this is when those five cardinal virtues or the spiritual faculties are present to some degree, and they're all in balance. So they tend to coordinate or corral the potentiality of the other supportive energies to come forth 
and uh, they give the possibility altogether of a much deeper harmony within. So this balance is so essential to our life, of course. We see it in, in our daily life. We can see it in our uh, practice on the cushion or in retreats such as this. It leads us towards ultimate liberation. So these qualities need to really be taken a look at, just as sometimes some of you have been uh, reviewing what qualities of the mind in terms of the seven factors of enlightenment are present. Sometimes these need to be looked at in terms of their balance with one another. And these kind of overlap the seven factors of light enlightenment as well. So the Buddha points out that he does not he did not bestow these upon us. They are already deep tendencies within our mind stream. They're waiting to be nourished and used within our lives. The more we use them with uh, intention, the more we bring them about by just seeing what's needed in our practice, seeing what needs balance, nourishing them by not um, faltering, by not getting misdirected in our practice to uh, places we have attachments to or aversions about, where we can just keep going one step at a time. This is how they're nourished and they're used. So by nurturing their growth and their understanding of how to keep them in balance, these five spiritual faculties turn into the five spiritual powers. So sometimes the same uh, ingredients, mindfulness, concentration, and energy, faith, and wisdom, they're called faculties. Sometimes they're called powers. And they're called powers when they become strong, when they become powerful, when they're fully uh, nourished. So this is a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, talking about these five spiritual powers. He said, uh, left to itself without the guidance of a spiritual, a superior source of instruction, the mind is a prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Dark forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good these forces are the defilements called the kilesas. By the way, the, the list of kilesas is longer than the list of hindrances. There's 10 kilesas. And just for your information um, and interest, I'd like to read what the kilesas are. You know, the hindrances are attachment, aversion, doubt, restlessness, and sloth and torpor. Kilesas are more than that. They're greed, hatred, delusion also include conceit, wrong views, doubt, torpor, restlessness, shamelessness, and recklessness. So he goes on to say about um, this uh, kilesas and about these spiritual faculties, as long as we live and act under their dominion, We are not our own masters, but passive pawns. 
driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment, but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our appetites. And this is accomplished precisely by the development of the five spiritual faculties. So it's good to investigate them, to know about them. Each one performs its own function and naturally reestablishes the balance among the others. For example, faith brings forth confidence to put energy into the path of our practice. If we didn't have faith, we wouldn't give to our practice that energy that it needs to keep going. And then energy kindles that mindful attention. We wouldn't have mindfulness if we didn't have the attention to fill that moment of mindfulness, to connect and sustain the attention on whatever the chosen experience is or the choiceless experience is. The moment-to-moment mindfulness on the changing experiences, which is vipassana, which is what most of us are doing here, brings about concentration, stronger concentration. So as momentum of concentration goes from one object or experience to another, one to another and to another and to another, it gains a lot of strength, a lot of momentum by that continuity. And so that continuity is what creates the concentration in our vipassana practice. It's not the continuity on one object. It's a continuity on changing objects in vipassana practice. So concentration becomes stronger, It steadies the mind, it unifies the mind's energy, so it becomes like a magnifying glass upon whatever the present moment is. And it pierces through the illusion of impermanence, of solidity, of wrong views, of some kind of eternalized self. And it really helps, this concentration really helps that wisdom to arise. It provides the deep understanding to actually experientially understand and realize the Four Noble Truths, to see the truth of suffering, its cause, its end, and the path to its end. And this, of course, is the deepening of wisdom. So faith turns, gives energy. It rekindles over and over again mindful attention. On moment-to-moment experience, this is what brings concentration. And that concentration, like a magnifying glass, pierces through a lot of delusion and illusion. So all of this leads to greater faith. And you can see how the cycle helps us to become stronger and stronger in that balancing more and more powerful in our ability to see the truth of how things really are. So I'd like to uh, go over each and every one of these, some uh, a little more lengthy than the others, just so we can 
ponder it over for ourselves. Sometimes the words that I say or that we say up here help you to find your own way in your practice. It's not just what we say, but it kind of uh, opens up your own understanding, your own stories, your own ways of seeing life and these qualities within your own heart. So faith provides the inspiration so that we can aspire to something greater than we already are, that we can go deeper into areas that maybe we don't understand quite completely, to have experiences that maybe we've never had before through our faith. We can open to them. We see the possibility for full liberation with our faith, to aspire towards less and less suffering and to more and more freedom. So this first step of faith is so foundational for the rest of the steps and qualities to grow and to take place. Of course, it steers the mind away from doubt, those empty echoes that come up the empty habitual echoes that say, you can't do this. Uh, This is, uh, you're not good enough, or I can't uh, understand this. But it gives us faith that we can. We can open to what hasn't been understood in the past. If doubt says, this is not the way, this is not the path for us, we're able to say to ourselves, I see you, Mara. We're able to say, let me find out for myself. Nobody else can tell me. So faith is stronger than doubt if we just keep on going, if we just really believe, even if that faith is so like a sliver of the moon coming into its fullness. We're not paralyzed by doubt. So faith knows the path of practice is worthy of our efforts. It Somehow we know this is a good thing to do. We may not know what is going to turn out by it, but somehow we know this is a good thing to do. So we have faith that even with the difficulties that present themselves, we can keep going on our path. And I call this devotion, when we kind of have devotion to some idea that we can become better human beings, that we can become more and more free. There has to be a way. When I was younger, I realized that um, it wasn't enough to just keep doing the things I was doing. I praying the rosary or, I mean, going to Mass. That all helped for my concentration. But I just couldn't keep believing blindly what was presented before me. So we have faith that we can withstand the difficulties, that devotion to our path, that there must be something more than this. So it's a quality of heart. It's not about intellect or kind of theoretical intelligence. It's, it's the ability for our hearts to say, I can keep going. This is hard, but I can keep on. It gives us a gift of lessening our pride 
And um, sometimes we don't want to face that we can't do it. But uh, we kind of have too much pride to say it out loud. We're willing to just fall back on what the old tools are that aren't getting us any deeper or any more free. So this pride lessens and we're willing to learn from every side. Uh, Manindra, when he would come to our house um, for different reasons, he would come and stay with us where we live on Maui. He would, he would listen to everybody, the children, and listen to what they're saying. And one time he was outside with a friend of mine who was fixing cars, and he was wearing these white robes. And um, the person was working on the car, you know, changing the oil and doing everything with the car. And uh, I was saying, Manindraji, come inside, or do you want to stand further away from, from the car? You know, because <laughs> there was a lot of oil was going around, and the person was just had his work clothes on and just was dirty as could be. And he looked at me and he said, I can learn from every side. And he, he was kind of looking at the engine and the, the air filter and everything like that. I don't know much about cars, but he was saying, I know this is like this in the mind, and that is like the heart, and this is like the tires are like this. And he, he found a way to find all the six of this and the four of that and the three of that in a car. You know, he compared it to the Dharma, and I just was like amazed at what he could do with every single thing that he looked at. You can learn from every side. Even the children would tell him things, and um, he would listen very intently of what they said. When we're willing to, lo- to do that, to learn from every side, we really have devotion to our path, and, and that's faith. Not letting the intellect guide us but our heart and our willingness to try for ourselves. Um, and let the, the wisdom come from our own personal experience, not, not because it, it does help, of course, of course, to read and to hear from others, but when it comes from our own hearts, that's the best. That's where we feel the, the most at home and at ease. So faith is in three categories usually. There's faith in the teaching, faith in the teachers expressing the Dharma. But most important is faith in ourselves, in our own ability to know for ourselves. So it's not like so much in the beginning, it's not like our potential, faith in our potential to be awakened. Sometimes we can't even go there. It's not in our... uh, ability to be awakened or ability to be like somebody else. But mostly in the beginning, it's faith in ourselves, in our own ability to know for ourselves. We can know the truth for ourselves. It doesn't have to come from outside of ourselves. I was telling someone today that uh, Munindra, when I first met him about 40 years ago, Uh, I was busy. You know, I had children to raise. When I first met him, I had three children, and then I had four. And I didn't have a lot of time to read. And he said, 
For you, he said, it's better not to read anything. Because <laughs> I said I would fall asleep. And he said, it's better to just practice. That's not good for if you have time to read the Dharma and do it. I'm not saying that now. But for me, he said, just practice and know for yourself. And then when you read or when you hear the Dharma, you'll understand, I understand that from my own experience. And it became true. I would hear things about the Four Noble Truths or the Five Aggregates or um, whatever the teaching was, and I would say, oh yeah, I can see that. So it didn't have to come in as an intellectual understanding that then I had to find the experience for. It became really experiential first, and then the understandings theoretically came and filled in. He used to say, Ehi pasiko, and that's a saying uh, in, in Buddhist circles, come and see for yourself. Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Don't depend on me to, to, to teach you so completely that you have to always depend on me. He said, teachers can point the way. Teachers or experienced friends, kalyanamitas, because they've been down the path, maybe not as much as some teachers have, but maybe a little bit more than you. So they are able to say, come and see for yourself. They can point the way. But you yourself have to walk the way. I can't walk it for you. And he would. I heard that from him various times when I would go in and just expect him to lay lay all the teachings in my lap so I could just, you know, then do it and be free. And he would say, I can only show you the way. You have to walk the way. And he would really just lean back in his chair. And I know my other teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, they have these fans, you know. They use the fans to, for various things, not just to keep themselves cool, but they put their Dharma talks, uh, little notes in them, they look at them that way. But I saw that it was also, this is my interpretation, it's also like, don't depend on me. And it's like giving themselves room and space so that they can just offer and the students can receive and walk and see for themselves. As we say in Hawaiian, uh, you know, don't throw a cord in me (laughs) that Um, you know, I have to cut off because you're depending on me. Keep your cords to yourself and walk your own path. See what you can for yourself. There's a group of people in India, I know this is a, a famous story, you've probably heard it a lot of times, but here it is again. (laughs) They were confused by so many spiritual teachers coming their way And they didn't know who to believe, whose advice to follow. So they went to the Buddha and they said, I'm making it short, they asked him, what should we do? We're uncertain, we have doubts. And the Buddha said, of course you are uncertain, of course you are in doubt. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated learning, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in the scriptures, nor upon specious reasoning, nor upon a bias that has been pondered over and over again. 
or another's seeming ability, nor upon consideration that this monk is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, blamable, censored by the wise, lead to harm and ill will, abandon them. When you know for yourselves these things are wholesome, not blamable, praised by the wise, lead to benefit and happiness, enter on and abide in them. So that's what the Buddha said back to the Kalamas. When you've tested it for yourself, then you know the way. And in in that regard, I remember at the end of a a very difficult retreat, which usually gives us the most... um, It's it's a steep learning curve, but we, we learn the most from the difficult retreats. I went to Sayadaw Upandita at the end of the retreat to give him uh, my gratitude and, uh, and just speak with him a little bit. And then he had his fan up. And when I asked him, what should I do now? And, his, and it was a very powerful retreat for me. And he said almost exactly to the word, you know the way, just walk it. And that was all. And it was just like, this is in your lap now. And uh, I really appreciated that ability to really turn to myself and look at what faith I had in my own path. Sometimes I had to borrow the faith from my teachers along the way when it was difficult. By borrowing, I mean that I saw and recognized that they were relatively free Um, and their lives express that kind of freedom through happiness and a lightness of heart and being able to advise me when, when I needed advice to keep going on the path through the ups and downs of life. And the one thing that also really helped is because they had gone so far, my teachers or my elder spiritual friends, where they had gone so far in their path they had complete faith that I could too. And that was so important to me, just the ability, uh, the, the uh, honor to be in front of someone that says, you can do it too. It's hard, but you can do it too. So this is what we call sada. Sada is that Pali word for faith that means you can place your heart upon it your own heart upon it. It doesn't have to be somebody else's that you're having faith in, but your own heart. One time, it was during that very difficult time, um, that was a very powerful retreat for me where I didn't know what to do. I, there were all kinds of things happening in my practice. And I went to the teacher. That was Upandita, and he had the translator from Nepal, um, Venerable Unyanaponika from Nepal, not the one from Sri Lanka. And so I, um, I was really in a big quandary and I wanted to go home and I didn't have faith in myself and there was so much doubt. And I think what happened is because they didn't know what to say. They probably said what they said because they knew what to say. But it was a really different. So 
I said, I want to go home. This is too difficult for me. I'm just not able to do this. Um, I don't think I could go on. So there was a little talk back and forth. And then the the translator, uh, Unyanaponika, said, Seedaoji says that when you don't know what to do, uh, usually it was in the walking practice that I had this difficulty, when you don't know what to do, stop and then mindfully bend down. Pull up your socks. (laughs) Mindfully get up and take another step. And I thought, okay. <laughs> but I did it, you know, and I still do it. I, because I just remember their faith in me, and I, I just remember that beautiful compassion that they showed me. And it was, what he was saying was, just keep going. But, you know, they had to find a way to say it. I mean, <laughs> it's our way to say, just go take a bath or <laughs> have a cup of tea and then start again, you know. So there's all kinds of ways we can find for ourselves to just begin again, just begin again. So there's blind faith that's kind of miss our misplaced trust where we don't really investigate what's going on, but we just depend on others. We hear something and we don't really say, okay, I'll investigate that for myself. We just agree. We just become yes people, you know, and we don't really find out, maybe wonderful what they're saying. And it's easy to say, yeah, that's true, and but we're not really sure that's true. When I would get to that point, and Manindra was, you know, in the beginning of my practice, and Manindra knew I was doing that kind of thing, like, can you just do it for me? <laughs> kind of, I had that kind of attitude. He would say, in a little bit of a scolding way, the Buddha solved his problem. Now you solve yours. You know, and so I said, okay. And he was like an uncle, a father, a grandfather to me. And so I went on like that. You know, okay, I really have to do this on my own. And there were times I couldn't get to retreats for years. I just had to practice at home and find a way for myself. And so I kept going. The bright faith that we have is seeing somebody like Manindra or like Deepama. Many of you know about Deepama. Or you have an experience in nature. Or you read something that really rings true for you. Where you say, I know that this is true somehow. You've seen it in your in your life or in your dreams or in somebody else even you're inspired by another person and you feel like oh you've come home when you hear the dharma in some way this is bright faith but it's still like putting your faith more a little more outside of yourself the possibility is there but um, you haven't really taken taken it into yourself so much. But as you keep on the path, your faith becomes more mature. It shifts from being out there to being in here, in your own heart, because of your own experience, your own direct experience. You confirm the Dharma, what is laid out, what is heard. 
you hear what is uh, being offered and you see, oh yeah, that's true. From my own experience, I see that's true. So it becomes verified faith. It's experiential knowledge, not knowledge that's gained by reading or hearing from someone else and just saying, I agree. But it's saying, it's understanding it from your own walking your path. So this verified faith becomes unshakable faith. And this is when one experiences the first path, this first stage of enlightenment. It's, it's important to hear about this. You don't have to believe it, but it's important to just hear about it. In this first stage or path of enlightenment, the belief in eternal self dissolves. That belief becomes, comes to the mind to see as, as be seen as this is wrong view in some eternal self. And we start seeing it in right view that everything is arising and passing away, the constituent parts of the body and the mind coming and going. There's no core to anything. So we start understanding that experientially, even in terms of what we call self. All doubt is vanished regarding this path of practice. There's what we call unshakable doubt. No matter what happens, your faith in the Dharma can't be shaken by anything. It dissolves the belief in that rites and rituals are necessary for liberation. So faith grows and kindles the fire uh, to bring energy, more energy to our practice, to be with the present moment, even though it's changing all the time, even though we don't like the present moment sometimes. It kindles the fire of sustained effort. So the energy of continuity becomes readily available in our moment-to-moment experience. One moment leads to the next and to the next and to the next. So our practice becomes effortless. This, of course, is an antidote, antidote to laziness. And so it goes on and on. The energy gives us this gentle, persevering effort. Uteshaniya, one of our teachers, calls it more patient, persevering effort. So there's patience there in the effort, no matter what's arising. There was a a, a Brahmin who came to the Buddha and said, How did, dear sir, did you cross the flood? meaning the flood of samsara. And the Buddha answered, By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I cross the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and not straining, you cross the flood? When I came to a standstill, friend, I then sank. And when I struggled, I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and not straining, I cross the flood. So if you ask me in one word what the most important thing is in our practice, I would say continuity. It's the continuity of all those factors in our practice, and especially our moment-to-moment energy. 
keeping the thread uh, electrified, keeping the thread of mindfulness electrified, whether it's general mindfulness or moment-to-moment precise mindfulness, sometimes it has to change. It can't be precise all the time. It needs to be more open, more spacious, more general. Like Utejaniya says, it's not a hundred-yard dash. This is a marathon. This is a lifelong marathon. And for some of you who may believe in it, it, it's a multi-life marathon. So we gather momentum through this. So it brings up the energy that I began, I talked about. Faith, energy, all of this important. And then mindfulness. This is the next of the faculties or of the powers when it becomes strong. Mindfulness is a wholesome quality of mind, of course. The word in Pali is sati. Sati means remembering. And it's not about remembering our past, although that can happen. It's mostly remembering, in its simplest way, remembering to be aware in this present moment. Remembering to be aware in this present moment. Even if the remembering is about a past event has come up, can there be awareness of remembering in that present moment? Even if there is awareness of planning coming up, futurizing, can awareness be there with the planning mind? It's not about always yanking the attention back to the breath, but it's about being with every moment that arises, whether it's through a memory or through planning or fantasizing. So it's this clean mirror that reflects exactly what's happening, a very clear awareness, carefulness, not carelessness, fullness of mind. When we hear the word satipatthana, the pa in sati patana means fullness. It means uh, extraordinary fullness. It's not like the, the kind of awareness that helps us to cross the street or to get our food when we're in line. But it's a very powerful kind of awareness. By nature, it doesn't push away anything. There's no aversion in that mindful awareness. By nature, it doesn't attach to what is there. It doesn't hold on. It simply reveals, mirrors the present moment with clarity. So it's able to reflect very deep universal truths. It reflects these truths over and over to us. And when finally, because of our karma our cause and causes and conditions, the mind gets to a tipping point where it finally deeply understands anicca or impermanence, understands anatta or the not-self characteristic. It understands dukkha, the unsatisfactory characteristic. So these things all happen because of the reflection clearly of those truths on deeper and deeper levels. 
With mindfulness, nothing is added. No views or opinions, no commentary about it. There's no camouflaging of what's going on. There's no ignoring. It's just this present moment experience, very clearly reflected. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. So negligence is the opposite of mindfulness, and mindful awareness overcomes that. That's what the word uh, for mindfulness means, non-negligence. So when someone has a quality of awareness about them, she or he is a very aware person. We, we sense that about them. It's a beautiful quality when we meet somebody in that way. Does have has nothing to do with their physical appearance or how many letters are behind their name, how much uh, education they've had or what their financial status is in life. When someone is a very mindful person, that person is beautiful. We sense that in in young people and older people, in people of all ages. And so it's important to see that. It's not just a quality of the intellect or the mind. It's a quality of the fullness of beauty of a human being. It's a person who recognizes what's going on, and at the same time participates in life. It's a participatory mindfulness. We can talk and know that we're talking, and also know what mind states are happening at the time of talking, at the time of walking, in all the various postures. This participatory mindfulness or awareness is a middle ground between being absorbed in an indulgence in what's going on, or identification with what's going on, indulgence, identification, or the other side of it is just blind denial. We can't even see what's going on because of various factors. So it's a very full feeling, a very clear recognition of what's happening. It balances all the other factors. So we would say that of all, this one is the most powerful, mindfulness. It balances all the others. So then we have, after mindfulness, we have concentration. So what's that quality? What is its, uh, what does it do on the path? What's its power? Concentration kind of holds a beam of attention very steady on the experience. Even if it's a momentary experience, it holds a steady beam of awareness, holds that beam of awareness on it. Whether it's a changing object or a chosen object, where we stay longer on the object. In Vipassana, it's momentary because it's on changing objects. So this concentration is the antidote to a dispersed and restless mind. We need concentration so much in our practice. 
It gathers the energy and it unifies the energy right on this moment. So Manindra would say, it pierces through the illusion of solidity. This is what concentration helps with the um, uh, attentiveness of mindfulness, these two coming together. Mindfulness, concentration, pierces through the illusion of solidity. So the mind begins to see this experience of whatever the body is, whatever the mind is, is not solid. It's always changing. It's evanescent. There's no core to it in any of its experiences, singularly or in combination with one another. So we really see that impermanence helping the mind, supporting the mind to see the non-self or not-self characteristic of what's going on. It also pierces the illusion of uh, satisfactoriness, that there's, there's some place that there can be lasting satisfaction. Of course there's momentary satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness, but it also goes away. We see through impermanence that nothing lasts, not even a moment of great pleasure or rapture or uh, deep moments of concentration. Even the uh, great beings that could be in very high moments of uh, concentration for world cycles at a time, they, they end and they fall from that. So this concentration and all of these other qualities come together and they bring about wisdom, growing uh, quality of wisdom, the opposite of uh, ignorance. It drives away what covers up the truth because of this ability to pierce through the illusion. It knows the truth experientially. People say, well, who's knowing? Is there an I that knows? And at a certain time, there is this wisdom that knows. Wisdom is knowing. Wisdom knows the truth. And so this is a very important uh, aspect of the Dhamma, this wisdom. It's what liberates the mind. That's why Utejaniya says that awareness alone is not enough. We can be mindful moment to moment and see the beauty of the present moment's experience, but without wisdom, there can't be liberation. So wisdom, extremely important. It liberates us from the suffering of not only clinging and hatred, but of ignorance itself. So we begin to live in alignment with how things are. It's not about book knowledge or intellectual knowledge. It's about experiential understanding, this kind of wisdom. So with practice, we can't just think about it. We have to actually walk the path ourselves. No matter how much, how many times we can go over all the knowledge we've learned, repeat the suttas, and um, 
know them by heart, know what the Buddha said and give perfect answers, we still have to know it for ourselves or else there's not freedom. So when faith, with faith and energy, awareness grows and the various lenses of the mind which see life uh, become exposed, the ways that we don't see life clearly. And because of more concentration, it settles the mind and there's less reactivity with more equanimity. We can see more deeply. Wisdom and understanding arise from that very naturally. We develop wisdom that is uh, liberating and we, we begin to see life anew. Sometimes it's shocking and um, it kind of shakes us up a little bit. But that shaking up is really important for us to experience. One time I was in practice and um, I was so identified with being a mother, you know, because I am a mother, of course. And I, I went to, the first thing I said when I went to Upandita and I, it broke up my image, identification with self as mother, broke up identification with self too. So I went to Pandita and he said, well, what is it? And I said, (laughs) it was kind of silly, but I said, my mother isn't my mother and I'm not really a mother. And so it took him a few moments to understand that because, you know, they're celibate and all that. They don't they don't, they're not about mothers and fathers, although they understand the mind very deeply and heart. So it took him a while to understand that I was so identified with being a mother, so worried, restless, and uh, doubtful about how can I keep going. I was so I had so many fears about what's going to happen to my children, and I realized, you know, in that moment, how much. I could really let go of, of course, I do the best I can, but can't hang on to result. Um, so we see in a more pixelated view when we get into our moment-to-moment understanding of what's going on, that there's nothing to hang on to, any identification of who we think we are. There can just be more and more wisdom, more and more compassion, more and more faith to know the way, more and more energy to keep on going, to keep being mindful, to keep bringing that moment-to-moment concentration to changing experiences. Then again, that brings more wisdom and more faith. And so we, we come to see that, as Carlos Castaneda said, um, we either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. <laughs> so it's, it's your choice. It's up to us what we do. We can keep going on the path of round and round on this, you know, birth and death of all the various places that we experience dukkha, moment to moment and in lifetimes. Or we can know the truth and free the mind and heart through 
wisdom and through the balancing of these factors. Mindfulness at the lead, faith and wisdom, balancing that. Uh, Concentration and energy, balancing that. See what you need. These are the things you bring out in your in your practice when you speak with us. Um, and so we, we try to see, do you need more comprehension of how to understand what you're going through? Do you need to just have more faith and devotion to your practice? Where does that balance need to be for you? Are you getting uh, too much energy, too much active exertion that restlessness uh, is there and you can't even see it? Or is there too much concentration that goes towards lethargy? So see where you need to balance out there. So this is essential on our path, finding the balance for ourselves. And in time, we find that it's very natural for us to go towards what is needed. Many of you already uh, bring your own... uh, remedies to, to us when you talk to us. You know the way already. You know, it's just, I used to go into Upandita and he wouldn't say much to me. He would just say, please continue. And a lot of the times, and um, many times, and then sometimes he would say, you're on the right track. Well, that was a little more encouraging. And <laughs> but I, when I, one time when I heard that, I, I asked Sharon Salzberg, he keeps saying, you know, keep, please continue. And Sharon said to me, that means to say you're doing the right thing. You're in balance. So when we say that to you, when we don't have much to say, it means you've got it down. You know, just keep going. There's nothing more to say about it. You've said it all. You've got the wisdom. Just follow. So I'd like to end with this um, beautiful uh, poem by William Stafford. And um, I'll just just read part of it. And And the name of this is Your Life. You will walk towards the mirror closer and closer, then flow into the glass You will disappear someday like that, being more real, more true, at the last. So let's sit for a moment and and let the words be impermanent and dissolve. 